we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Keen, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in West Cork, I investigate stories of the strange, always attempting to remain critical, but never cynical. This episode is all about the lost cosmonaut myth. On the episode to talk with me about this is Dr. Tom Ellis. This is a tremendous episode, folks. I'm very excited about it. Tom is a teaching fellow at LSE History. He's working on U.S. perceptions of the Soviet space program. It's a tremendously good interview. It's a great chat. Uh, He's exactly the guy you want in to talk about this kind of stuff. A lot of space race stuff, a lot of Cold War stuff, a lot of kind of weird science fiction-y elements and kind of like the beginnings of modern contemporary conspiracy lore as well. So this is a really, really great one. I do have a whole bunch of cool stuff to add before I get to the chat. A lot of stuff has happened uh, between the last episode and I want to try and get that done fairly quickly. So to start off, uh, it is a quiet night. I'm sitting at the front of the cabin. The stars are out. It's unseasonably warm and I'm having a cup of green tea. It is gunpowder green tea from Twinings just to make it a little bit fancy. I've got to keep up the kind of hipster credentials somehow or other. But uh, if you're like me, you not only, you know, peer into the woods and wonder what might be out there, but you stare up at the stars occasionally as well and wonder if there is some weird stuff going on up there too. And uh, hopefully this episode will be able to illuminate a little bit of that question. Now, first off, you can uh, get in touch with us always online on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland and on Instagram. We are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. As usual, if you like the show, you can support us by buying us a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash White Atlantic. And there's no weird. Huge, huge, huge thanks on this occasion to the dungeonindeepspace.com website slash blog for being very generous with their donation this week. They've gifted us with several lovely coffees. So huge thanks to the dungeonindeepspace.com. It is a website that does reviews, very in-depth reviews of sort of synth-based music that has esoteric themes, a lot of fantasy stuff, uh, occasionally a little bit of cryptozoology. I really like when this stuff kind of creeps over into the cryptozoology realm, and I've made a few recommendations of of albums that sort of straddle that line. So check out the website for more info on stuff like that. I do have a a sort of a synth, uh, maybe uh, ambient synth, I think is one word for this sort of thing. I do have one recommendation that is tied to our Cold War space Soviet era tech um, theme this week and it is it's an act called Zarbomb that's T S A R like the Russian Tsar and B O M B Zarbomb forgot to mention the name of the album is by Kanur um, and it's all a, it's like synth ambient music themed after you know the sort of nostalgia and regret of the Soviet space program and the the tracks have these amazing names like by the shores of the Aral Sea and there's a track about Sputnik and Cosmonaut Campfire and Yuri Circles the Earth. All stuff that is very relevant to our episode uh, today. So I do recommend uh, checking that one out. I think it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and like I said, it conjures up some of the emotions that we're going to be talking about uh, with, with Tom on the interview that kind of come up when we think about the memories of the, the Soviet space 
program. Right, what else do I want to talk about? So on our last episode, all about early modern witch belief with Imogen Knox, uh, we talked a little bit about Montague Summers, who's a kind of a early 20th century sort of influencer in the ideas of witchcraft and the occult as a continuing, uh, still existing phenomena, kind of eventually leading to a sort of 1930s sort of satanic panic. So I'm over on her blog, which is called Terrible Imaginations. She has since put up a really good article about a German 1920s silent film called Haxen, which was very influential in uh, again, like influencing the ideas of what we think about when we think about witchcraft. And the filmmakers relied very much on the kind of infamous uh, book uh, Malleus Maleficarum. And um, I'm just going to quote a tiny little bit from Imogen's article here. Um, so the, the creator of the film is Christensen and she says, Christensen's extensive reliance on the Malleus is unsurprising. The text has firmly established itself in the Western witchcraft canon, since its publication in 1486. However, this is not without its problems. Marion Gibson, for one, has pointed out that the Malleus was part of a far broader conversation about witchcraft and demonology in contemporary print. P.G. Maxwell Stewart has attributed the perhaps undue importance we now place on the Malleus to the work of Wilhelm Gottfried Salden and Joseph Hansen in the 19th century. Again, this idea that we talked about on the previous episode about you know, uh, our contemporary ideas about history being filtered through the Victorians as a very powerful shaper of our, our ideas. And um, Imogen continues, the Malleus would only grow in fame or infamy in the years following Christensen's film. In 1923, the work was translated into German by Johann Wilhelm Richard Schmidt and into English in 1929 by who other than Montague Summers himself. So, um, I will put a link to that article because um, if that's the sort of thing you're interested in, I really like tracing the ideas that led between the realities of sort of, you know, medieval and, and early modern witch belief into now our ideas that we have about these things and how they're filtered through all this stuff from the 19th and early 20th century. That's really my bag. And um, there's some good context in this article about that. Okay, I have some... Sasquatch stuff to talk about as well because um, a few friends of the show uh, texted me during the week and said Kian have you checked out the Hulu Sasquatch three-part series it's sort of a documentary about a filmmaker who's trying to track down a weird memory he has from the 90s about a supposed murder of three workers on a pot farm in what's called the Emerald Triangle up in the north of California by uh, some sort of Bigfoot type creature. And um, I won't spoil anything. It's it's worth a watch, absolutely. There isn't quite as much Bigfoot in it as you might think. Um, a few interesting characters from the world of Bigfootery do show up. I think Bob Hieronymus was in this one. Um, and if, there's some good, it, it gives you some good insight into the, the range of weird characters who are in that world and it might get you more interested in investigating it. Um, but mostly it's about the, the world of, of, of the pot farmers up in the north of California and that is its own sort of weird and interesting thing, especially the show does a nice uh, job of explaining how a lot of them were sort of hippie back to the land people originally in the 60s and 70s and how when the US government really cracked down on on the the pot growing it kind of turned them into this far more paranoid and jittery and you know kind of traps and firearms obsessed culture which to me is is, is incredibly sad 
But again, maybe some some crossover there with the sort of breakaway groups of the militia groups that we've talked about uh, on previous episodes as well. So yeah, um, check that one out. That's the, the Hulu Sasquatch show. But I have a far more personal uh, recommendation. So if you're one of the listeners who likes when we talk about you know, the history of sort of witchcraft or uh, UFOs or something, but you kind of tune out when I talk Bigfoot. <laughs> I'm going to direct you to um, a short 10-minute thing called Bobcat Goldthwaite's American Bigfoot. It's on YouTube. And the reason uh, this caught my attention this week was I mentioned recently the film Willow Creek, which is, I think, 2013, as being kind of one of the only good Sasquatch films. And I mean, that's, I'll quantify that. That's only if you can tolerate found footage and you probably already have an interest in Bigfoot lore but I was I was just musing whether the director Bobcat Goldthwaite was was a Bigfoot buff because there was quite a lot of lore in that film which is one of the things I like about it and um, you probably know him from Police Academy but he's a, he's a director he's been a director for years and, and it turns I found out a whole lot more it turns out he's he's nuts on the subject he knows loads about it he's done loads of interviews um, the, the main character who's a Bigfoot fanatic is, is basically a younger version of him and in this in this short 10 minute micro documentary American Bigfoot and um, the stars of that film uh, Bryce Johnson and Alexi Gilmore travel with Bobcat Goldthwait to a, a Bigfoot conference you know I, I think a couple of years after the film was made and it's it's really really interesting and again if it's a subject that doesn't uh, interest you try watching this I think it gives a really good broad view of the sort of range of odd ideas that exist within this community and what makes them so fascinating as as people uh, as well as an idea there is I'll, I'll give you a quick warning there is one moment of absolutely like shocking and abhorrent racism that comes out of absolutely nowhere from somebody who's presenting at the conference i'm not even going to say their name and um, it is just so pointless and unnecessary and unrelated to anything that is being spoken about um, and and quite rightly, the filmmakers and the presenters immediately uh, call call him out on it, and the, they're not standing for it, which is good because I don't stand for it either. But I was just excited to see how Bobcat Goldthwait and and Bryce Johnson, the the lead actor, male actor in that film, is a huge buff as well, and and runs Bigfoot podcasts and all that sort of thing. So it's nice to see that a a show that or a film that I I kind of have a soft spot for was made by people who were genuinely interested and, and not just, you know, they weren't just on a, on, a, on the job. They weren't just hired goons. So that, that was cool. Go check that one out. Finally, my last pre-interview thing, um, also about Bigfoot. Now, there's a really good uh, podcast episode I want to recommend. People have been talking about it online over the last couple of weeks. If you are if you follow Darren Nash, you'll probably know this. So it's called the Plastic Plesiosaur Podcast, and they did a fantastic, very, very long interview with Dr. Jeff Meldrum, who's like probably the main Bigfoot guy, pro-Bigfoot guy, believer guy, who's coming at it from what he would see to be a scientific point of view. He is he is a proper scientist, and he's he's really taken to task by the hosts. They're extremely skeptical, but everybody is very is very respectful of each other, and it's just a very illuminating interview where everybody gets to say their bit. And um, I think this is probably as good as it gets for like productive conversations about this stuff when it comes to is it a real creature that could exist in a, in a flesh and blood sense. It's not a sociological conversation, which is often how I like to to take it. It's, it's far more zoological, and it's just nice to see people with different points of view 
you know, being able to talk and get their ideas across. It does get a little heated occasionally because people care deeply about this stuff, but um, you just, just I think, wor worth a listen and also worth reading Darren Nash's article where he sort of adds in his own two cents. He's, he's also fairly critical of Jeff Meldrum, um, but he's able to explain himself very well, as always, because he's a tremendous zoologist. So I do recommend reading that as well. Quick note here from Editing Kean. In the upcoming interview, you are about to hear... Uh, my audio is a little bit damaged and I had to tinker tinker with some of it, so it might sound a little bit different to usual. I've done all I can. Uh, in a few occasions it was unsalvageable and I had to just re-record a few questions to insert in there to make sure that the conversation makes sense. However, fortunately, uh, I'm not the one uh, bringing most of the good information this time and uh, I only ask a few questions here and there throughout, so hopefully you won't find it too distracting. Anyway, you've come here for the Cold War, you've come here for the space race, you've come here for Yuri Gagarin and Sputnik and Last Cosmonauts. So let's take us into my chat with the fantastic Tom Ellis. So I'm Dr. Tom Ellis. I'm a historian uh, currently based at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, my research looks at uh, US-Soviet space cooperation and uh, competition, particularly how Americans think about and perceive what the, the Soviets were up to in space. You know, you've got two countries that are, are Cold War enemies. Uh, they're the, the sort of two most notable space powers. Uh, and I'm sort of really interested in understanding, you know, how did Americans view uh, the Soviet program, particularly you know, after the early period, sort of as the space age goes on, uh, and how did those perceptions sort of shape American culture uh, and American space policy? Brilliant. We haven't really done a Cold War episode on the show yet. I have been thinking for a long time about doing an episode comparing the two kind of post-nuclear war films, uh, Threads and The Day After. I mean, just, yeah, equ equally horrifying. <laughs> I think kind of... Uh, yeah, it's been years since I've watched Friends, but uh, I'm, I'm not in a hurry to, to repeat that experience. Brilliant. I think um, growing up, we got a lot of US media and a lot of UK media. And if they ever both tackled the same subject, I think we had this idea that the UK ones were always uh, a little more gritty, uh, willing to go a little more in depth and often be a little more horrifying or terrifying. Anyway, I want to mention your blog, which is called Red Sky at Dawn. It's absolutely terrific. You have an article recently about Yuri Gagarin. It is, we're recording this close enough to the sort of anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's April 1961 um, first space flight, first orbit of the Earth. And I think we might start with that and then use that as a kind of a jumping off point for springing into our main conversation, which is going to be about, of course, the lost cosmonauts. No, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so in that blog post, I was talking about a, um, a really interesting newspaper article. So uh, April 1961, um, uh, you've just had President Kennedy uh, elected. Uh, there's been sort of about three years or so of Soviet space spectaculars. So the Soviets orbit Sputnik, the first artificial satellite. Uh, they orbit the second Sputnik, which has Laika. Uh, the, the space dog who, who sadly dies pretty quickly in that mission. Uh, they launch probes to the moon. They're launching these, these sort of spacecraft. There's a lot of anticipation. And then uh, April the 12th, uh, they announced that they're sort of mid, the, the flight's already taken off uh, and the Soviets announced that they're orbiting at the moment a, a human being, um, a citizen of the Soviet Union. Uh, his name's 
uh, Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin. Uh, he actually gets promoted during his mission. Uh, so when he comes back down to uh, to Earth, uh, he has to sign off on the paperwork, you know, that uh, he's now a major. Uh, so Major Alex- Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin, the first uh, human being to orbit around the world. Um, and yeah, this, this causes a huge political furore in uh, the United States, uh, sort of partly because you've had sort of several years where the Americans have really been hyping up their own crewed space program. So the Mercury program, uh, all the Mercury astronauts have been introduced to the public. They have a magazine contract. Uh, there's been sort of magazine issues about their wives, their home lives, their characters are sort of being differentiated and embellished. Uh, meanwhile, the Soviets haven't really said too much about their crew program. They said, yeah, we're going to put people in space soon. Um, and then they just orbit this guy uh, and all hell breaks loose. Um, and so in that, blog post I was talking about an article where various press agencies club together and they look through telephone directories in big US cities and they um, they, they basically sort of called up guys who were called Joe Smith. So um, yeah, there were sort of various uh, sort of reactions from the Joe Smiths and these Joe Smiths were dotted around the country. But a big theme uh, from the Joe Smiths, these American everymen, uh, was the idea that, you know, this was a hoax or that, you know, we can't believe what the Russians are saying. Um, that there's just this sort of sense of disbelief um, that even though, you know, you've had Sputnik, you've, you've got this kind of idea that the that the Soviets are, are perhaps leading the Americans in space. But um, yeah, you sort of have these sort of Joe Smith saying, you know, it's hard to believe what the Russians say. Uh, another Joe Smith, I think in Miami, says it's a bunch of Russian lies, it's propaganda to break us all down, but they won't break us all down. It's a very sort of defiant idea. So Gagarin goes up, um, uh, he comes back down safely, uh, there's this huge celebration, uh, but still the American media is sort of churning over this, it's saying, you know, was this the case? You know, did he actually get orbited? President Kennedy has to admit that yes, that the United States has been beaten, uh, which is pretty humiliating for him, but he says, yes, this is, this is real. That goes some way to, to convincing people. But there are lots of weird details with the flight, you know, sort of uh, the Soviets are covering things up. They're saying that Gagarin lands in his space capsule. But then some of the discussions, you know, suggest that isn't the case. So he actually he didn't land in his space capsule. He parachuted down. Uh, he famously lands in this, uh, this field where a, a grandmother and her, her sort of granddaughter are there. And they think he's an alien uh, until he starts speaking. He's there in his orange suit, sort of waving and saying, I'm a citizen of the Soviet Union. And they sort of really, oh, right, he's speaking Russian. So, uh, you know, an alien wouldn't speak Russian. But also there's a worry that, you know, he could be seen as an American spy. So right at the last minute, they paint uh, CCCP, the, the initials of the USSR and Cyrillic, uh, onto his uh, onto his helmet. So there are all these sort of weird stories and rumours going on. Um, and Kennedy says, look, yeah, we've been beaten. Uh, you know, I hate to see it. You know, there's a, a, quite, a quote from, from Kennedy. I think about something else, but he says, being president would be the best job in the world if it wasn't for the Russians. You, you never know what those bastards are up to. And this is the kind of perfect example of that. Um, even though the CIA sort of expects this flight to happen, the US public is, uh, I, I guess, much less prepared and uh, politicians make a big deal out of this. So again, we're, we're kind of setting the scene here for the suspicion that people have of the, of the Soviets and the distrust and the idea that, firstly, it's interesting to me that conspiracy theories or at least distrust of official narrative is, is such a big thing so early on because I suppose we're used to thinking of it as a 
post Kennedy thing or a 1980s or 1970s thing, a post Watergate thing. Um, so, what kind of ways were the Soviets being secretive? Like, did you meant? Did you say that um, they would? They didn't admit that Gagarin was there until he was already in orbit. Is that? Wow. Yeah. So they, um, yeah, they wouldn't publicize the flight ahead of time. There'd be sort of rumors, and sometimes they'd leak information to sort of selected journalists. So. Moscow was awash with rumours. Uh, the CIA knew, um, basically, from, from sort of intercepted transmissions and the, the, the flights, the, the sort of test flights that had gone before Gagarin, that something was going to happen. And so the night before Gagarin orbits, um, when Kennedy's going to bed, uh, they sort of say, do you want to get woken up if the cosmonaut gets orbited? And he's like, no, I'll just deal with it in the morning. <laughs> so there is like this sort of awareness there. But the Soviets, yeah, they, they announced that the protocol was that once the launch is taken off successfully the cosmonauts in orbit he's live they then say we've orbited a cosmonaut they'd usually do they'd release that information through london uh, the task bureau in london because that would then mean that all the moscow correspondents would have to wait for it so the soviets would have a sort of important advantage over kind of western correspondents in moscow and this used to really annoy western journalists are the Soviets being secretive about these flights because they don't know whether they will succeed? They don't want to look bad if there is some kind of unexpected disaster? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's a real, you know, their, their successes in space have been a, a very rare big win for the Soviets in terms of propaganda. You know, you've, you've had in uh, the, the late 1950s, they've put down these uprisings in East Germany, in Hungary. Um, and so there's, there's a sense that this is a, a good news story. They want to maximize it if possible. They also don't want to admit any failures that they don't have to admit. Uh, now, sort of as the, the 60s goes on, the, the Soviets realize that, you know, that the West is, is tracking their Soviet program in, in various ways. And so they do get slightly more open, only slightly. But yeah, there is an idea that you don't want to, if something goes wrong, you don't want to release the full details. A big thing they do also is with their kind of non-crewed uh, planetary probes. They sort of try to send a, a probe to Venus. They try to send probes to Mars. Those, some of those probes don't work. Um, and so what they say is like, yep, yeah, we've just orbited a, a particularly large satellite. You know, look at this massive satellite we've orbited. Not going to tell you really what it does, but, um, you know, what a fantastic achievement. Once again, leading in rocket thrust. Uh, so there's this idea that they, you know, massage the truth there. With Gagarin as well, they say that he landed in the capsule because that means that according to like aeronautical records uh, which i believe there's this sort of international aeronautical federation um uh, that sort of compiles all the records kind of like guinness um for you know all the other records but this one professional body says that you have to land in the craft for the record to be um interesting to hear this sort of mistrust or kind of burgeoning co uh, conspiracy culture so pre to Watergate. Anyway, the Americans had explosions and, and space disasters as well. Um, and as far as I know, they were out in the open about them. Is it fair to say that the Soviets were in general more secretive? The secrecy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so. Obviously, there is secrecy within the American program. Um, so many flights that the, the, the Americans are putting up, so many rockets are for military purposes. Uh, the US doesn't reveal that it has spy satellites. It's an open secret, but it doesn't reveal that information officially uh, until the late 1970s. Um, so th there is still secrecy in the US, but yeah, the, the sort of more civilian program, the NASA program, uh, is much more open. Uh, NASA's secretive about some things, but no, NASA announces what it's going to do ahead of time. 
um, which means that, you know, it's always been criticized for being behind schedule or over budget. Um, whereas the Soviets don't announce that. And that's something that really annoys um, Americans like President Kennedy, this idea that, you know, he says that they're secretive and they just tell their successes. You know, it, it's easier to be on time if you never release a schedule. So there is this perception uh, for the Americans that you just can't trust what the Russians are saying about their space program. Yeah, so I think there are sort of a couple of important kind of contexts for it. The, the first context is this period between Sputnik and Gagarin, which is when the, the rumors first start, where the Soviets have all these high profile um, successes in space. And there's a lot of anticipation for human spaceflight. So everyone's getting ready for human spaceflight. Everyone is also very aware of the dangers of human spaceflight or believed dangers. So, you know, kind of uh, the, the administrator of NASA says that there will be fatalities in space. People are going to die in space like they've died on the high seas. You know, this is the next ocean. It's dangerous. But then also there's sort of two important contexts, which is this culture of conspiracy theories, which you're right, kind of post Kennedy, they really get supercharged, you know, after Watergate, people are less trusting of the, the US government. But the Cold War is, is raging at this time. Uh, and also the Cold War's created this. Uh, so Peter Knight, who wrote this amazing book called Conspiracy Culture from Kennedy to the X-Files, uh, really good book. But he talks about this bureaucratic culture of secrecy that, you know, you have all of these like, I mean, obviously in the Soviet Union, it's much more intense where you have whole cities that foreigners aren't allowed to visit. You know, people have to present internal passports to move between these different cities if they're related to a particular technology. The, the Soviet spaceport, for example, they lie about the location of that. Um, you know, they, they sort of, there's much more secrecy in the Soviet Union, but there's secrecy in America as well. And there's a lot of obsession with this idea of hidden communist conspiracies and, and communists bending the truth. You know, you've had McCarthyism, where, you know, this idea that the State Department is riddled with communists. Uh, you have the lavender scare, which is that uh, you need to get rid of um, LGBT people uh, within uh, the US government because they're a security risk and the communists will exploit them. So there's all of these sort of conspiracy theories flying around. You also have kind of this, this study, this kind of Kremlinology study of the, the communist mind. So kind of how communists think and there's this idea from very early in the Cold War that communism is a secular religion. It's, uh, you know, like kind of, uh, you know, kind of medieval Catholicism. It's this, this sort of code of, of living and being and ethics, but also politics. And it's very Machiavellian, you know. There's this idea that, um, you know, communists can do anything so long as it advances their revolutionary goals. Whereas in the West, we have morality. Now, obviously, the, the CIA in the US was up to all kinds of non-ethical things. Uh, and that's not just to say that, well, both sides are equal. But there is this idea that the communists are, are, are particularly deceitful and that they'll, they'll always lie. They'll never tell the truth. You can't trust anything they say just because they're communists. And people always wheel out these kind of Lenin quotes where he, he's talking about, you know, bourgeois morality doesn't apply to us. You know, the old capitalist morality, that doesn't make sense to us because we're building a new world. And to build that new world, we can, we can do anything we want. So that's another really important context, just this idea of, yeah, you can't trust the communists because they think in a different way to us. Um, and there's an amazing sort of a, an early example of the lost cosmonaut theory comes from um, Robert Heinlein, Starship Troopers. All that's, he's, a, he's a very right wing guy, um, but he visits the Soviet Union uh, with his wife. Uh, his wife speaks pretty good Russian. Uh, and when they're there, uh, the Soviets put up this 
uh, this is in 1960, they put up this, uh, this non-crewed craft. Uh, I think it's one of the flights that has a, a dummy in it. Uh, so it's to kind of prepare the way for um, Gagarin and, and the crewed program. Uh, but they put this flight up, but there's these rumors going around that it had a person in it. And Heinlein is really disappointed. He's like, oh man, they've beaten us to space. You know, this, this sickens me to my stomach, but well done. And then he thinks, well, I'll get a copy of Pravda, the, the Soviet paper, as a souvenir. Uh, and he can't find it. He can't find a copy anywhere. Uh, and he can't find this story in, in the Pravda that he manages to get his hands on. And he says, well, what happened to that cosmonaut? Because we heard people talking about this cosmonaut. Uh, he heard, I think, Air Force cadets. He was in Latvia. These Air Force cadets came up and they were like, hey, American, you know, you, we've beat you into space. How do you feel about that? And he's like, well, good luck. Uh, well done. But um, he can't find a copy of Pravda and he just stews over this. And he thinks that, well, they've turned this guy into, in, in his words, an Orwellian unperson. The communists don't have truth. They have Pravda. So Pravda means truth. Um, yeah. In Russian, and there's this Soviet joke that the two newspapers were Pravda, Truth, and Izvestia, News. And the joke was, there's no news in Pravda, and there's no uh, Truth <laughs> in Izvestia. So it's just literally that these cadets come up to him and say there's been a... And so it could be that, you know, they were having a laugh with him, or... But he Did says he that he was in... Laugh? Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's such a strange story. Yeah, he sort of says also that, yeah, it was in the newspaper, but then he couldn't get the newspaper. And, and he talks about this for years afterwards. And he, he writes this article about it where he sort of uses the lost cosmonaut, the, the cosmonaut who's died in space and his, his death's been covered up. And he says that this, this character is a, a martyr to the, the Soviet's deceitfulness, that the Soviet idea of truth. So within that, you've already got this kind of, this intense anticipation, you've got this idea of Soviet deceitfulness, and then also this very conspiratorial mindset, you know, that kind of, you can never trust the communists and, and that both sides are waging this sort of shadow war against each other. Uh, but yeah, that's a really important kind of early example of this, this story. And it's already by that point, pretty fully formed, you know. I know there is a tendency to attach maybe the first time something happens or an important event or an important quote to a famous person. So it's kind of, it fits into that, that somebody like Heinlein would, would be attached to this story. But not only that, but the fact that he was a, a very important science fiction writer in the 20th century and the fact that the, the whole Cold War is seen now through a bit of a, bit of a science fiction veneer, I think is one of the ways in which we tend to remember it. Well, so, yeah, there's, there's kind of a couple of earlier examples. But again, what really makes it take off is that it's important people uh, revealing it. So you have kind of senators talking about it. Um, a very early rumor comes from um, this guy, Hermann Oberth, who was a German rocket scientist uh, who is sort of involved in the American space effort. And, and in late 1959, he kind of, I think sort of they, they, the rumors start in around 58. Heinlein's talking 1960, but... Again, yeah, there's this idea that these important people are attached to the legend. I think with a sci-fi writer as well, because science fiction, you know, speculative fiction, it's meant to reveal this deeper truth about society. You know, you sort of, you use this fantastic storytelling, but you're telling a, a story about the world now. Mm. And this feels like a kind of sci-fi story because it's got this very neat little moral in it. And the moral is, you know, don't trust the communists, they're secretive. And, and so I think later about the Chernobyl show as well, because... Um, oh, absolutely. And I, I think kind of that does a really, you know, good example of like having this thing as like a parable for, for the, yeah. this, this broader story. But it's the same thing. And like, yeah, kind of um, Lost Cosmonaut stories get talked about in the 1980s alongside Chernobyl. You know, you have this example of a very real disaster based on, you know, a, a system uh, that, that wasn't operating correctly. 
with this this fictional example uh you know i i don't believe there is any sort of valid evidence for it I, I think it's a very revealing thing and i think you know it made sense to a lot of people at the time but i think it's really interesting that yeah you get these two stories and both of them uh yeah become i guess ways to denounce the soviet union you know look here they're two big scientific achievements the the nuclear program and the cosmonauts they're both lies they're both based on uh you know a, a false premise it's interesting how that show came out at the beginning of 2020 and for most of us our take-home message was you know about what happens within a society which is built on lies and um, what happens when something goes wrong and it's not dealt with properly and then COVID happened very shortly afterwards and uh, obviously uh, the way some countries dealt with it uh, certainly at the beginning was was not very effective and the the comparisons to Chernobyl were sometimes made uh, and sometimes reposted by people saying well at least afterwards, they did something about it quickly. Anyway. Absolutely. I, I, I think, yeah, like, it's sort of, I, I remember when the, the pandemic was sort of happening and going to these, uh, or having these meetings or emails from the sort of university authorities where they were saying, look, everything's under control. Like, <laughs> let's give a round of applause to the, the management for this sort of the scene where they're all applauding uh, the, the sort of veteran who gets up and gives this sort of speech full of, you know, communist buzzwords. But yeah, I think kind of that really, hit home uh i guess i mean i'll watch jared harris you know look miserable in anything i think he's uh, i think he's fantastic you know just what seeing him look at things go wrong is is you know such an enjoyable experience yeah. i'm reminded of a really interesting article I, I shared some time ago about the 1967 falcon lake in manitoba canada ufo incident because there were supposedly a trace traces of radiation associated with the story and it got me thinking about how radiation is wrapped up in all of these both UFO and kind of science fictional ideas. Uh, in the article, they eventually tie it back to ideas about radiation at Chernobyl um, because of the Strugatskys and the book Roadside Picnic and then bringing it all back to Chernobyl, of course, with the Stalker video game. So I'll share that one in the show notes. Anyway, um, what's the next main step in the evolution of the Lost Cosmonauts story? Yeah, so kind of the early stuff is, you know, you have... Um... I guess Oberth, he's pretty early um, in late 1959. Uh, you have sort of various people, kind of senators. Um, one person who's quite important is um, Don Flickinger, who is, he's the, the, the kind of, I guess, yeah, sort of doctor within the, the military establishment. He's very important in the, the developing field of space medicine. And he says that, well, the Soviets have killed a couple of men in their efforts um, and that two cosmonauts got, in his words, clobbered. Uh, and the Soviets are covering this up. Um, so you have these kind of important people there uh, talking about this. But then I guess what kind of happens is that you, you have this uh, this experience of, of Gagarin going up and then other cosmonauts following and Americans having to process that. Because, you know, Gagarin is, is much more effective than Sputnik because he's a human being. You know, he's this handsome, charismatic guy. Uh, he looks way better than all of the sort of elderly Soviet leaders, uh, you know, he's, he's this, the, the Soviet Union deliberately sells him as a sex symbol. They encourage all these rumors that he's going around the world having affairs with like Hollywood stars and stuff wow. like that. And they like they well, they sort of subtly encourage, they're like, yep, Yuri's a real man. Uh, you know, he, you know, he could score with all the girls he wants, but he's also a family man. So, you know, that, that wouldn't interest him, but they sort of create this idea that, yeah, he's a, a sort of real man's man. You have other cosmonauts as well. Um, uh, Gaman Titov, goes up next when he visits the US um, you know there are crowds of screaming teenagers there to see him wow. uh, he like paparazzi chasing him and stuff like that um, 
then Valentina Tereshkova a bit later, the first female cosmonaut. And, and just all of these figures are confident, young, exciting uh, symbols for the Soviet Union. And to anti-communist Americans, this is incredibly galling because they're, even though the American space program is gearing up and it will very soon take over uh, the Soviet program with the Gemini missions, um, the, the Soviets are accruing all this time in space. They're doing all these very impressive things, but then they send these cosmonauts back and the cosmonauts go on these world tours. And it seems like, um, you know, uh, that they're taking the initiative and they're making, basically the Cold War is all about winning over the undecided parts of the world. You know, you've got to win over Africa, you've got to win over Asia, you've got to win over Latin America. And there's this idea that the cosmonauts resonate with those places because they can have a human connection and they're an exciting story. So Gagarin goes to Brazil and there are all these babies that are being named after him or, you know, kind of, um, he, Gagarin goes to India and there are these huge crowds, you know, the uh, General Kamenin, who's head of the cosmonaut training program says, you know, Gagarin is more popular than Jesus because, you know, Jesus had to feed people bread and fishes, but Gagarin satisfies the people with his appearance alone. You know, he, he doesn't even need to bring snacks. Like people are that happy to see him. Makes me think of the film Goodbye Lenin, which is uh, about kids growing up in, I can't remember whether it's East Germany or East Berlin, but uh, just how obsessed they are with the cosmonauts and the, the, the Russian space program and how it's this kind of really important kind of bright shiny point of optimism within their world and uh, something that they really look up to. It, absolutely. Oh yeah, it's an amazing film. Um, and yeah, I think it kind of, you know, at, at the end of that, they have like the, the East German cosmonaut or this guy who looks like him becomes the, the the sort of president in like the parallel universe, uh, East Germany. And and yeah, and he's because he represents like an optimistic sort of, yeah, it's like it's this last moment where, it, you know, they could have succeeded with this. I saw a picture recently of uh, the inside of the Chernobyl complex where there was a mural on the wall of this kind of imagined Soviet space future. And it's pure, it's pure total George Jetson. It's that really, really nice kind of 60s style retrofuturism where everything has a dome on it and there's flying cars and of course monorails everywhere no absolutely and i mean that one of the really interesting things about the cold war i think is that the end point that both america and the soviet union are selling particularly to the third world you know this jetson's future absolutely it looks pretty similar it's yeah. just that you know in in one kind of people don't need to work because you know technology so so you in america you have all this worry about the problem of leisure that yeah. there's going to be too much leisure time and people are going to go mad but in the Soviet Union, you know, you have this idea that, you know, going back to Marx, where it's like, well, you know, you can hunt in the morning, you know, raise cattle in the afternoon and then criticise after dinner, you know, like there's this, the destination looks pretty similar. Star Trek being the perfect example of that, you know, they're all, there's no money. They live in a post-scarcity society. I once read a book in school called The Earth is Near by a fellow called some Ludek Pesek, who I think was living in the, in the communist Czech uh, Republic or Czechoslovakia as it was and um, it's all about a, a manned trip to Mars with kind of mid-20th century technology but in, instead of being all optimistic it's incredibly realistic but also incredibly grim there's no life on Mars there's nothing but dust and death and decay and the dust gets everywhere and fouls up their machines and gives people horrible medical conditions and everybody dies and it's a complete waste of time and it's so it's so dark and grim and, and so different to other kinds of science fiction from that period and it's really always stuck with me.
It sounds fascinating, but that there is this weird schizophrenia, I think, in science fiction and cultural depictions of space at the time, because, yeah, you've got this Jetsons idea that the cosmonauts are broadcasting, which is like, you know, Khrushchev says, we're all, you know, your children and maybe the young people today are going to live in communism. You're going to, you're going to get to paradise. Like I might not, but you're going to get to paradise and it's going to be great. And there's this real excitement, you know, that they're going to live to see it. But then you also have, um, there's a guy called Gary Westfall who wrote this book called The Spacesuit Film, where it's about this very hard sci-fi, realistic sci-fi like that. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's this kind of, like, it really emphasises that space is hostile. Space is going to kill you if you do the slightest thing wrong. And the spacesuit film and the spacesuit story, because they, they emphasise that you have to wear the spacesuit. You know, you're not sort of Buck Rogers or... Uh, Flash Gordon, you're having to suit up and go into airlocks and all this sort of stuff. And it's all very tedious and, and grim and bleak. But both of these things are going on. So you have intense anticipation and optimism. But then at the same time, this kind of sense that, God, yes, yeah, space is, is a harsh mistress. It's, it's going to, if you make a slight tiny mistake, you're going to die. And yeah, the lost cosmonaut period uh, sort of rumours emerge from that period. Um, another thing I should say that, that's sort of really important um, in Lost Cosmonaut mytholo uh, mythology emerges during this kind of time where there's lots of excitement about the, the early cosmonauts. Um, and so you have these two brothers in Italy, uh, a place called Torre Bert. Um, it used to be like a convalescence home. Their, their dad's a doctor. So, um, yeah, I think, so they're, yeah, there's Achille and uh, uh, Giovanni Battisti, uh, these two brothers. They also have a sister, Teresa. Uh, who is involved, but she sort of gets written out of it. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. But um, so you have these sort of two, well, you have this, the, the, these two brothers and a sister and they start, they've been tracking space flights and they've released these recordings to the Italian media from genuine flights. But then they start releasing these other recordings and they start making these other claims that they have intercepted transmissions. So this, this is a genuine thing that all around the world you have amateur trackers who just tune in and try and find the radio signal of a spacecraft once it's in, in orbit. So Sputnik was deliberately designed so that amateur radio trackers could listen to it. They could hear the beep because that's going to magnify the propaganda. Uh, so this is a, an established thing. But the, the weird thing with Judica Cordigula is, is that they're the only ones who ever intercept this stuff. You know, other people never intercept because what should be happening is that you'd have people in Sweden or people in yeah. Britain, people in the Netherlands, that they'd all be, which is what happens with the actual fights. But the Judica Cordiglias, uh, I mean, they sort of populate this whole cemetery with cosmonauts uh, over kind of the, the between about 1960 and 1964. So, I mean, you know, kind of increasingly sort of bizarrely named like sort of Terenti Shiborin is, is this one. Um, or Serenti Shiborin, which isn't even a name, uh, Vasilievich Zawadowski, um, you know, kind of all of these various kind of, um, Pyotr Dolgov is, is a big one. He's, he's an actual guy, but he dies in a parachute jump. Um, but you have, they sort of release these recordings and they say, look, we've, we've tracked it down. And they have this kind of very Hardy Boys, gee whiz, you know, image. They're these just these two young guys and they're up there on this like hill. They've created this sort of, you know, in incredibly impressive laboratory. There's a really interesting article by a guy called Sven Gran, who he was one of these space trackers. And he analyzes photos of their tracking station and he's saying, well, this looks really cool, but so many of these things that they have up there don't actually 
do anything. Like kind of, you know, you have like these maps and charts and stuff and it's like, well, that's, yeah, yeah like some of the equipment they've got is the same as what I've got, but a lot of this stuff is, is just there for show. But anyway, the Italian media has camped out at Tory Burt and oh. what Gran argues is that because there are all these journalists, they want to turn in a scoop. Uh, the basically the, the the journalists are starting to get a bit bored because they're like, oh look, here's another you know uncrewed Soviet probe, or you know here's a, a flight that could have a dog in it, and they start getting bored of that, so they start coming up with these claims. And I mean, some of the claims are pretty astounding. Like you, you have some that have names, you have a lot more that um, that, that aren't named. So there's a a flight that sort of has two men and a, a woman in it. Um, the, there's often these anonymous women, um, these anonymous female cosmonauts, and that becomes an increasingly important thread in there that you have the, the, the Soviets are putting women into space, uh, the women are dying, and then they're covering it up uh, until Valentina Tereshkova comes back. Uh, but even then, uh, there are all these rumours in the West that she goes mad in orbit or that she has a nervous breakdown, which you know, isn't true. But there's this idea that, yeah, kind of women are being sent up by the Soviets, uh, they're going mad. Um, but yeah, like when you listen, you can listen to these these recordings. I think it's been archived uh, on the the Internet Archive. Maybe I'll put that on the show notes. But um, there's a site where you can go and you can listen to the recordings. And um, they they are sort of quite yeah, they they're they're really strange. They are quite distressing to listen to. It's a really, I think, stirring, horrible idea. I mean, there's been loads of subsequently, uh, lots of kind of artistic depictions of it. And, and the, the sort of main genres of uh, this kind of idea, um, it's usually sort of short films. There have been like kind of really? 10 short, yeah, there's been, so um, there's one called The Landing. Uh, that's one of the most interesting ones. It's a short film about a cosmonaut who lands in America and um, something bad happens. That's really interesting. There's one called like Into the Silent Sea. Uh, there's another one called The Cosmonaut, uh, which was then made into a, a, a sort of feature length film. Yeah. Is, uh, this, is, this is this recent? Um, who are these? Um, within like the, the last kind of 15 years, I'd say, yeah. Like within the last 20, 15 years, there's been a lot of short films about this. Yeah. And some of them are better than others. Like a lot of them sort of use this kind of particular variation on the lost cosmonaut which which comes in after the collapse of the soviet union which is where the lost cosmonauts a lot more rather than a sort of angry character the lost cosmonauts kind of often quite angry in the early stories you know they're cursing the soviet union for allowing them to die in space the the sort of short film cosmonauts are are sort of sad cosmonauts (laughs) They're, they're 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 sort of very mopey and there's this sort of emo sensibility that um you know oh, well, here I am having my poetic death in space. Uh, and it works quite well for a short film, but, you know, you, if you've got to fill two hours, it, you, yeah, uh, they I'm struggle. Positive that, like, David Bowie ha- was thinking about this in Space Oddity. It's about a guy who dies in a capsule above the I, Earth. And I think that, I think it's, he's definitely, I mean, I'd, yeah, because I, obviously I think that is the, you know, the, the most successful, the most famous kind of example of this as a cultural thing. And I think he's sort of 
responding to that. He's responding also to, I think, you know, you have the Apollo one fire. Uh, but I think he, yeah, he just gets that, you know, this melancholy image of someone, you know, did, and with Major Tom as well, it's just such a mysterious death, you know, he floats out and then yeah. that's it. It's, it's kind of cosmic horror, um, <laughs> which I think, you know, he was probably into all that stuff. You know, he, he sort of had a very eclectic, uh, list of influences but yeah major tom absolutely and interestingly sort of in one of bowie's last videos you see a a dead astronaut who has this kind of jeweled skull and these women take the skull and then they perform this ritual and you know that's part of his sort of very stage managed uh, final appearances where he's you know sort of playing with the audience's idea you know ideas about him dying and things like that but you know he he sort of one of the last things artistically artistically he does is he you know buries major tom uh you know major tom comes home in a sense but it's again it's this it's really interesting because it's this skull in a spacesuit and in the last 20 years that's become the dominant i guess cultural image of the lost cosmonaut is is a you know the the yuri gagarin style spacesuit it's got to have cccp on the the top of it and then it's it's a death's head or a rotting face and it's just that is the lost cosmonaut idea just boiled down I've definitely seen people writing articles online tracing the history of this image through like the covers of pulp novels and albums, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that kind of the, the skull astronaut, I think it's just such a resonant thing because the astronaut's meant to be this optimistic character. Uh, you know, he, he's sort of going from immortality, but you sort of subvert that with the skull. And I think, yeah, it's kind of increasingly that's what the theme if you go on youtube and you type in lost cosmonaut it's just all going to be these skeletons you know um there's a film uh, apollo 18 which is like a, a found footage film yeah what did you think of it i think visually it makes great use of the in interior of the lunar capsule and the lunar surface as a kind of a tight space in which to make a low budget uh, horror film it does suffer a little bit from the sort of everything has to have zombies in it which was very much the thing back in 2012 or 2014 or whatever, right? I think we can probably blame Zack Snyder for that one. Absolutely, yeah. But I think that has kind of, so that has that they stumble across this, um, you know, these, these cosmonauts who've landed on the moon uh, and they find sort of a dead cosmonaut. There's actually a film from 1968 called Countdown where they also, it's um, James Kahn and Robert Duvall and they stumble across some, some dead cosmonauts. And there's this very sort of poetic moment where um, I think James Kahn thinks he's going to die on the moon because it's all going wrong. So he gets the American flag and he lays it next to the Soviet flag that the cosmonauts have put up. And so it's this idea that like, yeah, we, we both, we're both part of this ridiculous propagandistic effort, with, you know, and we, we've both been killed by it. Um, but that's a sort of, yeah, kind of rare example of it being in a film at the time. I think as a sort of, I think, in the kind of 60s, when you're talking about the lost cosmonauts, uh, it's, it's mainly in newspapers. It's uh, people talking about it in, you know, uh, the Senate and Congress. Um, there is some cultural examples of it, but it becomes more of a cultural thing, I guess, later on. Um, but the Judica Cordiglias, them with their recordings, they, they play a big role. But you also have um, people who are kind of, yeah, become lost cosmonaut researchers, really. So there's a, a guy called Drew Pearson, who's a newspaper columnist. He writes loads of columns about it. And then there's a guy who's um, papers I've looked at called uh, Julius Epstein. And it's very weird sort of doing a conspiracy theory. And there's an Epstein in there. <laughs> you know, and obviously no relation. Um, but yeah, kind of, um, 
I'd been doing a lot of Googling of this guy and then all of the Jeffrey Epstein stuff came out. But um, yeah, Julius Epstein, he's a, a kind of, he's from Austria originally. Uh, he moves to the US um, because of the rise of the Nazis and his work is a researcher, but he becomes obsessed with this, this lost cosmonaut idea. And he sort of starts compiling all of this uh, information. He writes these articles um, about the Judicate Cordiglias, but because he works for the Hoover Institution, this, this think tank, um, he kind of, I, I guess he sort of makes it more authoritative. You know, suddenly there's this, this raft of new articles about the lost cosmonauts when the idea is kind of dying down a bit. Um, but he, yeah, he becomes obsessed with it. Uh, and he's particularly obsessed with the idea that it's not just the Soviets who are covering it up, but the US government is covering it up as well. That there's a double cover up, that the Soviets covering it up, but then for some reason, the, the US doesn't want to kind of, you know, embarrass the Soviet Union or because the US is, you know, has its own secrets that it's covering up, that the US is, is complicit in this. And the American people need to know, you know, because obviously you expect the communists to be deceitful and, you know, they don't care about human life. That's a big thing in the, the lost cosmonaut theory. It's that, you know, they're sacrificing these people for propaganda. Uh, but Epstein is, is, he becomes this sort of researcher of it. He's really, uh, you know, even though he, deliberately says he says look the hoover institution isn't paying me to do this but this is what i'm researching in my spare time this is you know it becomes an obsession for him this should be fairly familiar to those of us who pay attention to conspiracy culture as always we get the figure of the lone genius the one person who's figured all of this out and is willing to dig into the details to prove their claims uh, moving back to the italian brothers for a moment and um, perhaps when their recordings were going around in italy um, it wasn't so obvious as to what the accents were like, the Russian accents on the recording and how convincing they might be. What happened once um, people with perhaps uh, more na natural knowledge of Russian accents managed to be able to hear these? Yeah, sure. So um, a big thing that kind of people who are Russian speakers say about the recordings is that the grammar is pretty terrible and that the construction of sentences is like someone who has been learning Russian. I mean, I sort of was listening to it and I was like, oh, that sounds all right, but I mean, my Russian's terrible. Like, kind of, I, I speak a bit of Russian, but not very well. But yeah, it, it's even, yeah, sort of once you start thinking about the way the sentences are constructed, like um, it, it doesn't sound quite right. I mean, particularly with sort of the female cosmonaut recording where she's constantly saying like, you know, I'm, I'm hot, I'm hot, the, the capsule's growing hotter, I can see flames. The, the weird thing is, is that you could, I guess you could say, oh, well, she's in this, you know, mortal situation. She wouldn't obey the proper protocol. But that is so drilled into them, you know, that these are, are people that you have to communicate in, the, in this particular way. And one thing that kind of happens with lost cosmonaut transmissions is that they're, they're always very eye-catching and sort of poetic. So you have kind of like, you know, th this one account, which, which comes from the Judica Cordiglias, where the cosmonauts at the end say, you know, remember us to the motherland, we're lost, we're lost. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of, they always have this moment, kind of uh, later stories, you have them with their dying breaths, they're always cursing communism, and they're saying, you know, kind of, uh, a really interesting thing happens as well. So the Soviets have their first actual death in space. So the first death of a, a cosmonaut, during a mission, the cosmonaut has been killed in a test fire. There's also been a rocket that exploded, killing everyone on the landing pad in the very early 1960s. Those are covered up. Those, those are kind of events that are covered up. But when they lose their first person uh, during a mission, uh, Vladimir Komarov uh, in uh, 1967, 
Komarov um, gets turned into a lost cosmonaut in a way because you get all of these accounts of what he was saying at the end of his mission. Um, and there's this idea that he was speaking to his wife. He said goodbye to his wife uh, and he was saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And then they got, um, you know, Alexei Kosygin, who is, you know, the sort of co-leader of the Soviet Union at that time. And Kosygin's crying and he's like, we're really sorry that we failed you. And Komarov's getting really angry back at him. He's like, you know, you've, you've done this. You've killed me. You've murdered me. Um, and then at the end, yeah, he's just screaming in rage, which sort of ignores the fact that, you know, he, he, he wouldn't have been co in contact during that period of re-entry when he died. You know, he, that, that you couldn't communicate during that time. So there are lots of kind of rumours around Komarov when he, he comes out, but they, that sort of idea that he's, he's kind of cursing his, his spacecraft and he's screaming uh, comes from a guy who claims to have worked um, for the CIA uh, and he said that he was listening in. Uh, and, and what kind of historians think happened was that this guy didn't speak great Russian and he just told the story so many times. Uh, he tells it to like a kind of hippie magazine, first of all, it has kind of quite an anti-CIA viewpoint. And so he's sort of egging up, you know, he's sort of over-egging this story a bit. And with each time it becomes more and more astounding. Um, but the thing is, that was published in a book that came out uh, about 10 years ago. And it was also then repeated, uh, it gets repeated everywhere, um, this story, but it was then repeated in Adam Curtis's most recent documentary. So he was clearly reading this book. I think Adam Curtis is brilliant, but um, he, he does repeat this, basically turns Komarov into a lost cosmonaut, you know, this this tragic guy who was, who was cursing the Soviet Union. And, you know, he, he demands to have an open casket to shame him. It's like, well, there's a very famous photo of his body and it's all mangled and charred, but he didn't have an open casket. He was cremated and then, you know, it was an urn. And there are photographs of people looking at the urn and, you know, lost cosmonaut stories just ignore that detail. Um, but Komarov dying leads to these theories bubbling up again. You have this idea that, you know, if he's the first one they've admitted to, and it sort of puts the lost cosmonaut theorists in an odd position. Um, some of them say, yep, yeah, this is just another one. This is just the first they've admitted. But there's one guy called Lloyd Milan who, he from the 19 from 1960 onwards he'd been saying that the soviets were faking space flights and you know that they they were exaggerating and milan sort of completely reverses it he says like no actually komarov's alive uh they just faked a cosmonaut death to get sympathy and then they gave him plastic surgery and he's living as another personality now and it's like well on the one hand you're saying that they covered up these deaths and then now you're saying that you know, uh, the, the one time that someone does die, oh no, he didn't die. And, and so you get into that kind of conspiratorial logic where you can't trust anything they say. So even yeah. when they admit a death, you well, that wasn't really a death. You take the alternate of whatever they say. That's yeah. so common, it's so common, and it's, it, it leads to all these contradictions in so many different uh, types of conspiracy. The, with, with the Italian case, is it true that the, the sister, who you said was kind of taken out of the story, she did speak or she had been learning Russian, is that? Yeah, so so early on, they kind of talk about her being the one who speaks Russian. Uh, and they say, Teresa, the sister, um, she speaks Russian. Basically, they kind of create this idea that, yeah, they've got this sort of space clubhouse and they're all pitching in and they're all, you know, doing these very exciting things. But I think sort of Teresa gets talked about less and less, partly because, you, you know, the, the sort of Judica Cordiglia siblings and there's this sort of sexism, you know, it's just about these brothers and you know, male affinity for technology and stuff. But I think also she might get talked about less and less because I, I think it's pretty clear that it's her talking uh, in a female cosmonaut um, sort of audio clips. I mean, 
again, as I said, like my Russian isn't isn't amazing, but that that you do get a sort of slight Italian accent from the way that she's kind of um, enunciating. I don't know, I, you know, maybe that they had someone who who was Russian to do it, or you know, maybe that they did, you know, track this. But um, I mean, as you were saying, that yeah, people who, you know, what did people who uh, knew about knew a bit more about the Soviet program? What did they think? So. In America, there's a big divide between people who have security clearances and people who don't. Again, this very conspiratorial Cold War culture, you know, there's concentric rings of secrecy. And if you're an insider, you know more, but you can't reveal it. And that gives you power. So there's a guy called um, Charles Sheldon, who I'm writing about at the moment. He uh, was an expert at the Library of Congress, and he becomes the biggest American expert in the Soviet space program. And he has a security clearance. He talks to sort of members of the CIA um, and the Defense Intelligence Agency and the NSA. They tell him what they think about the Soviet program. And then his job is then to go and find open sources that corroborate that. So he can release this information without disclosing classified secrets. So he's sort of found a loophole around kind of classification. But the thing is, he can't disclose that he's talking to uh, you know, people guess, but he can't say, oh, I talked to this CIA member and then that's where I got it because then he'd be revealing a source. So people, lots of people say, you know, this is our best expert. You know, he's, he's incredibly exact. He's revealing all these things about the Soviet program. Um, he's speaking all around the US. But then you also have people going like, well, he's just using open information. So how can we trust him? And this is what Epstein thinks when Julius Epstein, when he's, so I've looked through Epstein's papers and I mean, it's fascinating, you know, because quite often when you're researching a topic about the kind of Cold War and, you know, bureaucracy, it can be quite dry. But Epstein's papers are amazing. He, he sort of annotates Sheldon's book, Charles Sheldon, the Soviet space expert, and he, he's like underlining and he's like, you know, preposterous uh, and like sort of five exclamation marks. But I, I think for Epstein, the, the best sort of document in his papers. Um, so he used to give all these interviews, but I think at one point he was getting annoyed that he wasn't getting, this story wasn't getting traction because it should be the biggest story in the world. The, the, the Soviets are covering up deaths in space. But what he then sort of does is he's like, I'm not being interviewed, but I need to practice what I'm going to say when I get my big interview. So there's a document where he interviews himself, where he like writes all the questions out and then he writes the responses. And, and there's one bit where he sort of starts off a question where it's like, now tell me. And it's just so bizarre to read. But he he's infuriated by Sheldon because Sheldon, in every speech he gives, he debunks this. He says, look, these don't obey the laws of physics. The idea of the lost cosmonaut program, you know, being true wouldn't make sense because how come most tracking stations around the world don't track these flights? And how come there's a successful program and a failure program? Obviously they're covering up certain failures, but there isn't a parallel program where it's always going wrong, that only persistently lucky amateurs, he calls them. And he also, he gets particularly annoyed with one story about, that I think comes from the Judica Cordiglias where the Judica Cordiglias say that, um, and obviously that they're all right at maths because to track this stuff, you need a bit of mathematical, physical knowledge. But they, they tell us one story about um, a direct ascent rocket. So a rocket going straight up. And usually with a rocket, you're sort of launching it in inclination to then break out and sort of get into orbit. But some rockets are launched in this direct ascent trajectory, uh, particularly very early on to sort of, you know, test things about the, the upper atmosphere. But they're saying that one of these rockets just kept going. And it just kept going up and up and up and up. Uh, and it didn't fall down as it would, you know, every orbit is the rocket slowly falling back down to earth really. 
uh, it just kept going and it went out of Earth's orbit and then it went out of the sun's orbit. Um, and Sheldon is infuriated by this. He's like, kind of, that doesn't even, or well, you're not infuriated. As, you know, he's a pretty, you know, um, staid guy, but he, he does talk, he's like, if this happened, this would be the most impressive thing that humans have ever done. Well, they, they've broken the laws of physics. Anyway, Epstein, the, the conspiracy theorist, um, which I think it's fair to call because he, he writes to people who earlier had popularized this. So he writes to Don Flickinger, he's like, Dr. Flickinger, you said that, um, you know, cosmonauts were clobbered. Could I ask for more information on this? And Flickinger says, oh, um, yeah, it turns out I was wrong. Uh, you should write to this guy, though. You should write to this guy called Charles Sheldon because he's a really good expert and Epstein obviously doesn't do that. He also then, um, he's sort of writing to people, he kind of, and, and Epstein's getting a bit frustrated that lots of people have doubled back on their story and this creates this idea there's a cover-up. Um, but actually, at one point, um, Sheldon is giving one of his regular speeches. He goes all around the country talking about the Soviet programme and he shows up at um, Stanford University, which is where Epstein's based. And as part of it, he, you know, because I've gone through Sheldon's papers a lot and he basically gives the same speech in each location. It's like, look, space is important, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. You know, we need to understand what's going on. The Soviets aren't these, you know, uh, they're not as, they're not as secretive and evil as you might think. Obviously, they, they, this is a very important problem for us to deal with, but, you know, we need to look at this rationally. We need to evaluate it based on the evidence. We need to avoid myths, both communist myths that, you know, everything works and everything's going according to plan and other myths like the lost cosmonauts. And he gets the lost cosmonaut part in his speech. And um, he, he sort of starts laughing about this one article that he's read in a local newspaper. Uh, he's saying, you know, this is ridiculous. And then Epstein stands up and he says, I wrote that article. Uh, and he has a big sheaf of papers, which is always a great sign at a public meeting. He's like, I wrote that article. And they get into this sort of back and forth where Epstein's saying, you know, uh, why are you covering this up? Um, you know, I've talked to all of these eminent people and they all agree with me. And Sheldon goes like, well, they don't know what they're talking about because they don't have security clearances. They've not seen the information. And Sheldon's like, well, why is NASA, you know, keeping the information hidden? And Sheldon goes, yes, there's too much secrecy, but we, you know, let's talk about this in private. And Epstein just storms out. Um, and he sort of does continue, but I think that sort of, for Epstein, he sort of hits a brick wall there. Um, he dies in 1975. He's still sort of looking into it, but I think that encounter is just so frustrating for him that kind of some of his enthusiasm, I think he thinks that, look, he starts looking into sort of other things and, and you know, he writes a book about um, sort of the US and Russia collaborating and exchanging prisoners at the end of the, uh, the Second World War. But I think, yeah, just this encounter with Sheldon has a big role in, in, in sort of taking his... Yeah, he just thinks, oh, well, I'll never win. You know, the, the conspiracy is so total, I'll never break through. So I'm thinking that in some ways, after the Soviet Union falls, you know, this myth was so rooted to that particular time and place and that world order that it, it, it kind of becomes divorced from, you know, the, the world in which it came about. Uh, but, you know, bits of it do hang on. And some of the ideas and concepts of, you know, having a secret uh, space program shows up in, you know, stuff like Alternative 3, where you have both the Soviets and the Americans, you know, working together covertly and, and bigger ideas about, you know, secret space programs that still show up in contemporary uh, culture, uh, conspiracy culture today. But I suppose for you, what would be some of the lasting repercussions of this idea? Yeah, so I think kind of 
what happens is the Soviet Union collapses and all of this information comes out about uh, the Soviet space program. So at one point, there's so much information coming out about Soviet history that they have to cancel all of the history exams for that year because the textbooks aren't correct. So there's, there's all of this... Yeah, which is just an amazing story. I mean, I don't know if you'd be happy or annoyed if you were a student sitting those exams at the time. But basically, they, they sort of, you know, because they've had all of these, you know, Grandfather Lenin was a friend to the peasants. And then all this information comes out where Lenin's, you know, ob obviously not very friendly to the peasants. He's like, you know, <laughs> these people need to be, these people need to be, be taught harsh lessons and stuff like that. But all of this information comes out. So you get information about um, a guy called Valentin Bondarenko, who was killed in a test chamber fire, very similar to Apollo 1, um, just a couple of weeks before Gagarin went up. Uh, and he, I think, contributed towards the lost cosmonaut mythology, this idea that because there's a, a story that's told about a cosmonaut arriving in a Moscow hospital and he's horrifically burnt and he's there under a, a different name. But so you have revelations like that. You also have revelations about, um, you know, a, a guy called uh, Nelyubov, who was in the first class of cosmonauts, but he was very arrogant. He, he sort of didn't keep his head down, got kicked out, and then eventually died in, in what looks like, a, a, you know, he, he committed suicide. Um, he sort of, he gets killed by this, he's run over by this train. It looks very much like he sort of killed himself because he became an alcoholic once he was kicked out of the program. So you those people there were all these photographs where they've been airbrushed out and people have been like that's because they're lost cosmonauts wow. you have people in the west uh, a guy called james oberg it goes like look these are people who've been airbrushed out the soviets are lying they're covering things up but they're not lost cosmonauts these are guys who dropped out of the program for whatever reason but the thing is like there's all of these revelations including you know the, the soviets have by this point said like we were never going to the moon that was just a thing you thought we, we were doing, but we were never actually interested, even though they were saying for years we're going to the moon. But this, all this information is coming out, but the lost cosmonauts still don't, the, the, the truth according to the lost cosmonaut theorists still doesn't come out. And so that's a sort of weird work moment for them because they think, well, no, this stuff's going to come out and then it doesn't. And I think what happens then is you get this much more kind of cultural lost cosmonaut image. So it's no longer this kind of political, you know, it's about telling the truth and it's about, you know, um, Soviet secrecy. It becomes more metaphorical, I think. Uh, so there's a guy called Darren Jorgensen who wrote this article about cosmonauts in like post-89 film and television. And he says the cosmonauts, this tragic figure. I mean, even um, Peter Stormer in Armageddon, you know, he's, even though he's a comic relief character, but his space station's falling apart. He's, you know, drinking vodka, like he's, he's not shaved. He looks like a mess. Yeah. There's this idea the cosmonaut's this tragic figure because he's tied to this system that collapsed. Yeah. Um, and I think the lost cosmonaut now is the sort of the most obvious kind of example of that. It's the idea that, you know, the, the Soviet dream failed and even these very, you know, uh, optimistic seeming things like Gagarin, he gets reinterpreted as like, well, the lost cosmonaut. Uh, you know, you see those photos of the Soviet space shuttle, the Boran, where it's ruined you know it's in this sort of abandoned hangar and it's just left there to rust so those that image like the skull and the spacesuit just it represents that look communism failed it's just a very easy way to it's a metaphorical way for saying that i think similarly i guess you always see pictures of the cosmodrome abandoned and in ruins absolutely yeah because you it's sort of because they there's still this glimmer that they were optimistic you know um but of course that political project in the, in the sort of world that we live now that, you know, there's this kind of you know, Mark Fisher, you know, that there's no alternative to capitalism. 
um, and we're haunted by the ghosts of these futures that you know used to exist. And and by now that the sort of because it used to be the lost cosmonaut thing was a very anti-communist uh, phenomena. It was about Soviets are deceitful, the Soviets are telling lies, the Soviets are propagandistic. Whereas now it's this kind of tragic thing. I think people are sort of drawn to it because it represents, I guess, the, the sort of tragedy of the Soviet Union in this quite cliched way. But also like this kind of, yeah, the, the sad cosmonaut, which is a sort of figure in Western literature and film, you know, um, there's this uh, this terrible play called the, the a letter from the cosmonaut to the woman he loved from the Soviet Union, where it's just this this cosmonaut moping, and you know his daughter becomes a prostitute after the um, Soviet Union collapses, and and it's this very sort of melancholy thing, um, and I think that's what it is now because initially it was sort of it was kind of created in this atmosphere of sour grapes and anger, but now it's it's this much more mournful uh, image, you know, kind of it, it's it's about sort of yeah, like in kind of songs about it, like Yulia by by Wolf Parade, it's about like this this cosmonaut sort of, and, and his girlfriend, and they're separated, you know, he's he's going to be trapped there forever. Uh, and she knows that he's, he's going to die. Um, interestingly, sort of, sometimes culture about lost cosmonauts gets mixed into lost cosmonaut myths. So there's a Russian novel called Omon Ra, which is an amazing book about, basically, it's very critical of the Soviet Union by a Russian author called Viktor Pelevin. And he, basically, it's got all the lost cosmonaut myths in there. Uh, and it's got this one bit where cosmonauts are being sent to the moon inside the the lunar cogs, the moon rover, the the moon rovers, but they're not being piloted by robotics. They're being piloted by people who are going to be left up there to die. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that you know they because they their technology wasn't that advanced, they couldn't possibly do that. So that they sent. I mean, in some stories like this, yeah, this plot point from because Pelevin was was talking about this urban myth because obviously there are urban myths about lost cosmonauts in the Soviet Union as well. Um, I, I know less about them, but I know that definitely that, that this is a myth that gets talked about over there. But there was this myth that um, because the lunar cods were a certain size, they were pretty big. But at one point, they either had to like amputate people's legs to fit them in there, or they had to send oh. up kind of they had to send up like um, uh, little people. So there's the idea that there was a little person who was in the KGB and he was sent up to to pilot the lunar cod. So that's kind of one example. Another example is. Um, uh, there was an art exhibition in 1988 by uh, a woman called Joan uh, Fontcuberta uh, in Barcelona, and it was about this kind of lost cosmonaut uh, called Ivan Istochnikov, which is like a kind of Russianization of her name. But Ivan Istochnikov began um, being talked about as a lost cosmonaut, and people were saying, like, look, this is the transmission. Here's a photo of Ivan Istochnikov, and it's the photo from the art exhibition because she doctored all these photos and she created this fictional history. Uh, it's like a really cool art exhibition, but it got on the internet, which is where this lost cosmonaut room is kind of taken a second life. It gets all sort of remixed in there. Now, there's also kind of documentaries as well, but I think, yeah, there's just a real a, a sort of attraction to this tragic story. Um, and I guess then it was all about like finding the truth, whereas now it's about, yeah, it's a historic thing. It's it's tragic, you know. Uh, that they're still up there, the lost cosmonauts, but you know, the the sort of problem that they represented doesn't exist anymore. It's just that kind of idea that yeah, that this was something different. That I, you know, because I think there is something about kind of how the West views the Soviet space program that you know it views it as this kind of alien civilization. That you know there are these sort of you know transmissions coming down and that it represents this other world. I mean, in the late seventies, it's weird because there's this sudden resurgence of kind of worry about the Soviet program um, that kind of bubbles up where you have people, Oberg, who writes 
the book kind of denouncing the lost cosmonaut theory, he says, he says, look, I can predict that the first space colonist is going to be Russian. The Russians are going to build a space colony uh, in the early 90s and that, that's going to be it. They're going to be away. And so there is this sort of, even sort of quite late into the, the Cold War, there's still this kind of idea that this represents just the, the one field where maybe the Soviets are onto something. And, and so I, I guess kind of in the early 60s, it's this idea that, no, that's a lie. They're not good at anything. Don't believe them. Um, you know, stop watching the television, turn it off, kind of Gagarin's on. Um, it, he's, he's lying, he's lying to you. Um, which, and obviously Gagarin did have to participate in certain cover-ups. So Andrew Jenks, uh, an amazing historian in the United States, has written a really good biography of Gagarin called The Cosmonaut Who Couldn't Stop Smiling, where it's just about Gagarin having to go along with these um, these lies and half-truths that the program made him publicise, you know, about certain things that they'd covered up. Obviously not deaths in space, you know, that, those didn't occur. But yeah, so there is this... And, and Gagarin becomes this kind of tragic figure um, sort of after the end of the Soviet Union. But yeah, I think, um, I, I think th that's the thing because if the Soviet, co if the, the lost cosmonaut theory was true, we probably would have found out about it in the early eighties, but there's always going to be this idea that we'll never find the real truth because it'll be hidden in an archive somewhere. Oh, you'll, you'll never get to the real truth uh, because the Russians just, even now they wouldn't let it come out. I mean, um, a couple of years ago, I got contacted by an American documentary producer and he said, oh, I want to make a documentary about the space race. Like, we'd love to have you involved. And it turns out it was about the lost cosmonaut theory. And he was basically saying, he was like, yeah, you can be the lead person in the documentary, but you have to say that this is real. And I was like, well, I, I can't say that because there's no evidence. And he was like, well, what if we flew you to Russia? And I was like, well, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to to find it and it was like what if we got you a translator and I was like no you're not like kind of um uh, and I just you know kind of there is just this thirst I think for that story to be real and but even then just to you know oh we'll never know the truth because there's somewhere like in Vladimir Putin's desk there's a file that has all the info um so Judica Cordiglia's claimed that uh, Fidel Castro when he was visiting the Soviet Union had been let into this room in Star City, the, the sort of space facility, which was like a shrine to all the lost cosmonauts. And you go in there and there's just pictures of all the people who've died. And Castro was let, and he was told, look, this is a very special place, you know, like, uh, and there's this idea that Judica Cordiglia say that, you know, every cosmonaut goes into this room before their space, which you just think, why would they do that? I mean, I think there are memorials and stuff, like they all go to Gagarin's office, but why would you put someone who's just about to go into space and you want them to be calm? It's like, oh, here's, here's the room with all of the guys that we killed. Uh, look, there's Dolgov, there's um, Vasilievich and everyone. And, and, you know, kind of, there is this idea that, yeah, that somewhere in Russia, there is this, this secret still being kept. Um, and, and that one day, you know, far into the future, perhaps we'll know the real truth. But Well, perhaps that is the right place to leave it for this particular episode. Where can people find your work online or is there anything you've done you'd like to point people towards if they want to know more about this subject? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm uh, so one thing, if you're able to, uh, if you're in the UK or you're able to kind of access um, UK uh, BBC Sounds, um, there's a, a radio documentary called Gagarin and the Lost Moon uh, that I sort of helped um, consult on. So that's really good. If you want to know the real story of Gagarin, um, there's, there's other, some of the space experts I've talked about are on there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Tom Somol, um, and my, my blog is Red Sky at Dawn, 
dot uh, WordPress. Um, so yeah, that, that's where you can sort of find more of this stuff. Fantastic. I really, really, really do recommend that folks check out that uh, BBC program and the blog as well. I have learned a tremendous amount from both of them. Um, and I guess just to finish up, I've, I'd always heard about this particular topic. I had no idea that it was so prevalent. I had no idea it showed up in so many different places and was so long lived. And I, I, it had never occurred to me that it could stand for so much more than it really was. So this has been a, a tremendous uh, conversation. I've learned a tremendous amount from it. Thanks a lot. Cheers. That is it for this episode, folks. Once again, huge thanks to Dr. Tom Ellis for talking with us on this occasion. And thanks to you for dropping into the cabin for another episode. As always, you can get in touch with us online on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. Let us know what you think or leave a review. Those are always very welcome as well. And as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.